Chapter 9 of The Terror, A Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jenny Clements. The Terror by Arthur Machen, The Light on the Water. Let it be noted carefully that so far Merritt had not the slightest suspicion that the terror of Middlingham was quick over Marion. Lewis had watched and shepherded him carefully. He had let out no suspicion of what had happened in Marion. Before taking his brother-in-law to the club, he had passed round a hint among the members. He did not tell the truth about Middlingham. And here again is a point of interest that as the terror deepened, the general public cooperated voluntarily, and one would say almost subconsciously with the authorities in concealing what they knew from one another. But he gave out a desirable portion of the truth, that his brother-in-law was nervy, not by any means up to the mark, and that it was therefore desirable that he should be spared of the knowledge of the intolerable and tragic mysteries which were being enacted all about them. "'Who knows about that poor fellow who is found in the marsh?' said Lewis. "'And he has a kind of vague suspicion that there is something out of the common about the case, but no more than that.' "'A clear case of suggested or rather commanded suicide,' said Remnant. "'I regard it as a strong confirmation of my theory.' "'Perhaps so,' said the doctor, dreading lest he might have to hear about the Z-ray all over again. "'But please don't let anything out to him. I want him to get built up thoroughly before he goes back to Middlingham.' Then, on the other hand, Merritt was still as death about the doings of the Midlands. He hated to think of them, much more to speak of them, and thus, as I say, he and the men at the Porth Club kept their secrets from one another, and thus, from the beginning to the end of the terror, the links were not drawn together. In many cases, no doubt— a and b met every day and talked familiarly it may be confidentially on other matters of all sorts each having in his possession half of the truth which he concealed from the other so the two halves were never put together to make a whole merritt as the doctor guessed had a kind of uneasy feeling it scarcely amounted to a suspicion as to the business of the marsh chiefly because he thought the official talk about the railway embankment and the course of the river rank nonsense but finding that nothing more happened, he let the matter drop from his mind and settled himself down to enjoy his holiday. He found to his delight that there were no sentries or watchers to hinder him from the approach to Larnack Bay, a delicious cove, a place where the ash grove and the green meadow and the glistening bracken sloped gently down to red rocks and firm yellow sands. Merritt remembered a rock that formed a comfortable seat, and here he established himself of a golden afternoon and gazed at the blue of the sea and the crimson bastions and bays of the coast as it bent inward to Sarnau, and swept out again southward to the odd-shaped promontory called the Dragon's Head. Merritt gazed on, amused by the antics of the porpoises, who were tumbling and splashing and gamboling a little way out at sea, charmed by the pure and radiant air that was so different from the oily smoke that often stood for heaven at Middlingham, and charmed, too, by the white farmhouses dotted here and there on the heights of the curving coast. Then he noticed a little rowboat at about two hundred yards from the shore. There were two or three people aboard, he could not quite make out how many, and they seemed to be doing something with a line. They were no doubt fishing, and Merritt, who disliked fish, wondered how people could spoil such an afternoon, such a sea, such pellucid and radiant air by trying to catch white, flabby, offensive, evil-smelling creatures that would be excessively nasty when cooked. He puzzled over this problem and turned away from it, to the contemplation of the crimson headlands. And then he says that he noticed that signaling was going on. Flashing lights of intense brilliance, he declares, were coming from one of those farms on the heights of the coast. It was as if white fire was sprouting from it. Merritt was certain, as the light appeared and disappeared, that some message was being sent, and he regretted that he knew nothing of heliography. 
Three short flashes, a long and very brilliant flash, then two short flashes. Marriott fumbled in his pocket for pencil and paper so that he might record these signals, and bringing his eyes down to the sea level, he became aware, with amazement and horror, that the boat had disappeared. All that he could see was some vague, dark object far to the westward, running out with the tide. Now it is certain, unfortunately, that the Marianne was capsized, and that two schoolboys and the sailor in charge were drowned. The bones of the boat were found amongst the rocks far along the coast, and the three bodies were also washed ashore. The sailor could not swim at all, the boys only a little, and it needs an exceptionally fine swimmer to fight against the outward suck of the tide as it rushes past Pinnegred Point. But I have no belief whatever in Marriott's theory. He held, and still holds for all I know, that the flashes of light which he saw coming from Penrear Hall, the farmhouse, oh, the height, had some connection with the disaster to the Marianne. When it was ascertained that a family were spending their summer at the farm, and that the governess was a German, though a long naturalized German, Merritt could not see that there was anything left to argue about, though there might be more details to discover. But in my opinion, all this was a mere mare's nest. The flashes of brilliant light were caused, no doubt, by the sun lighting up one window of the farmhouse after the other. Still, Merritt was convinced from the very first, even before the damning circumstance of the German governess was brought to light, and on the evening of the disaster as Lewis and he sat together after dinner, he was endeavouring to put what he called the common sense of the matter to the doctor. "'If you hear a shot,' said Merritt, "'and you see a man fall, you know pretty well what killed him.' There was a flutter of wild wings in the room. A great moth beat to and fro and dashed itself madly against the ceiling, the walls, the glass bookcase. Then a sputtering sound, a momentary dimming of the lamp. The moth had succeeded in its mysterious quest. "'Can you tell me,' said Lewis, as if he were answering Merritt, "'why moths rush into the flame?' Lewis had put his question as to the strange habits of the common moth to Merritt with the deliberate intent of closing the debate on death by heliograph. The query was suggested, of course, by the incident of the moth and the lamp, and Lewis thought that he had said, Oh, shut up, in somewhat elegant manner. And in fact, Merritt looked dignified, remained silent, and helped himself to port. That was the end that the doctor had desired. He had no doubt in his own mind that the affair of the Marianne was but one more item in the long account of horrors that grew larger almost with every day, and he was in no humor to listen to wild and futile theories as to the manner in which the disaster had been accomplished. Here was a proof that the terror that there was upon them was mighty, not only by the land, but on the waters, for Lewis could not see that the boat had could have been attacked by any ordinary means of destruction. From Merritt's story it must have been in shallow water. The shore of Lornock Bay shows very gradually and the admiralty chart showed the depth of water two hundred yards out to be only two fathoms. This would be too shallow for a submarine, and it could not have been shelled, and it could not have been torpedoed. There was no explosion. The disaster might have been due to carelessness. Boys, he considered, will play the fool anywhere, even in a boat. But he did not think so. A sailor would have stopped them, and it may be mentioned that the two boys were, as a matter of fact, extremely steady, sensible young fellows, not in the least likely to play foolish tricks of any kind. Lewis was immersed in these reflections, having successfully silenced his brother-in-law. He was trying in vain to find some clue to the horrible enigma. The Middlingham theory of a concealed German force, hiding in places under the earth, was extravagant enough, and yet it seemed the only solution that approached plausibility. But then again, even a subterranean German host would hardly account for this wreckage of a boat, floating on a calm sea. And then what of the tree with the burning in it that had appeared in the garden there a few weeks ago, and the cloud with the burning in it that had shone over the trees of the Midland village? I think I have already written something of the probable emotions of the mathematician 
confronted suddenly with an undoubted two-sided triangle. I said, if I remember, that he would be forced, in decency, to go mad, and I believe that Lewis was very near to this point. He felt himself confronted with an intolerable problem that most instantly demanded solution, and yet, with the same breath, as it were, denied the possibility of there being any solution. People were being killed in an inscrutable manner, by some inscrutable means, day after day, and one asked why and how, and there seemed no answer. In the Midlands, where every kind of mutinotment was manufactured, the explanation of German agency was plausible, and even if the subterranean notion was to be rejected as savouring altogether too much of the fairy tale, or rather of the sensational romance, yet it was possible that the backbone of the theory was true. The Germans might have planted their agents in some way or another in the midst of our factories, but here in Marion, what serious effect could be produced by the casual and indiscriminate slaughter of a couple of schoolboys in a boat, of a harmless holiday-maker in a marsh? The creation of an atmosphere of terror and dismay. It was possible, of course, but it hardly seemed tolerable, in spite of the enormities of Louvain and of Lustiania. Into these meditations and into the still dignified silence of merit broke the rap on the door of Lewis's man and those words which harass the ease of the country doctor when he tries to take any ease. "'You're wanted in the surgery, if you please, sir.' Lewis bustled out and appeared no more that night. The doctor had been summoned to a little hamlet on the outskirts of Porth, separated from it by half a mile or three-quarters of the road. One dignifies, indeed, the settlement without a name and calling it a hamlet. It was a mere row of four cottages, built about a hundred years ago for the accommodation of the workers in a quarry long since disused. In one of these cottages, the doctor found a father and mother weeping and crying out to Dr. Bach, Dr. Bach, and two frightened children and one little body, still and dead. It was the youngest of the three, little Johnny, and he was dead. The doctor found that the child had been asphyxiated. He felt the clothes. They were dry. It was not a case of drowning. He looked at the neck. There was no mark of strangling. He asked the father how it had happened, and father and mother weeping most lamentably declared that they had no knowledge of how their child had been killed, and that it was the people that had done it. The Celtic fairies were still malignant. Lewis asked what had happened that evening. Where had the child been? Was he with his brother and sister? Don't they know anything about it? Reduced into some sort of order from its original, piteous confusion, this is the story that the doctor gathered. All three children had been well and happy through the day. They had walked in with the mother, Mrs. Roberts, to Porth, on a marketing expedition in the afternoon. They had returned to the cottage, had had their tea, and afterwards played about on the road in front of the house. John Roberts had come home somewhat late from his work, and it was after dusk when the family sat down to supper. Supper over, the three children went out again to play with other children from the cottage next door, Mrs. Roberts telling them that they might have half an hour before going to bed. The two mothers came to the cottage gates at the same moment and called out to their children to come along and be quick about it. The two small families had been playing on the strip of turf across the road, just by the stile into the fields. The children ran across the road, all of them except Johnny Roberts. His brother Willie said that just as their mother called them, he heard Johnny cry out, Oh, what's that beautiful shiny thing over the stile? End of chapter 9